Hello and welcome to EM Talk. EM Talk is a podcast sponsored by Axon Education and the Texas EMS School, and we are devoted to diving into the real world of EMS and everything relative. We interview real EMS providers, real hospital providers, real patients, and get the real story on what's going on currently in the world of EMS and what we can do to make it better. The first date I ever had with my wife, we saw a movie. Then on the way to take her home, I rapped some song for her. Uh, Not the smoothest way to impress someone, especially when I wasn't even good at it. I have no idea why I thought to do that, but things worked out. Even to this day, I remember every word to that song. And every time I hear it, I'm transported back to that moment, sitting in that 1994 Ford Explorer, singing that song to her. I think everyone has memories like that related to songs. The same thing is true when it comes to different sounds as well. Some sounds just make you feel a certain way. Your mind, for whatever reason, is conditioned to it. The sound that they played in those Purge movies, the siren sound, when you hear that sound, it creates a dropping feeling of fear. I hear a sound now that since the pandemic has always taken me back to a feeling of fear. It's a raspy breathing sound. The virus that started this whole thing created some pretty significant respiratory issues in a lot of different patients. The issues went on and on and caused this raspy wheezing sound. It was loud and that is how they breathe right before the end. I hear it and I feel fear. I look to Mark and Casey and they hear it too. As EMS providers, we were taught to listen for this type of breathing in order to identify the extent of infection and possibility of danger towards us. Usually, the sound meant that the patient only had a couple of hours left before conversion. We start to look around and notice someone stumbling towards us around the other side of the ambulance. They are only about 10 yards away, but moving slow. By the looks of them, I can't imagine how they're even able to stand up. We all get in the ambulance and lock the doors. The last thing we need is to expose ourselves even more. As they get closer, I look out the window and can tell that it's a female, about 20 years old, but a rough-looking 20, probably because of the virus. We aren't going to hurt her. She hasn't turned yet, and it seems able to function somehow. I yell for her to stay where she is. She stops and looks up. I can tell she's struggling to breathe, but I ask her how long she's been sick. She says something, but is barely audible because of the effort needed for her to breathe. I roll down the window just a little bit so I can hear her better. I ask her again, and she says, two days. I look towards Mark. He looks at me. We're both confused because it usually only takes about 24 hours for the process to be complete. How could she survive this long? I can tell by the look on his face that Casey's thinking the same thing. I ask her to look up at me. She looks up and I see the eyes. They have started to turn big, dark pupils. Her skin is already pale 
and her veins are starting to show through her forearms, purple in color. I say quietly to the others, do we just need to go? Do we just take off? You would think that's a pretty easy decision to make, but we've all devoted ourselves to helping people just like this. I know anyone else in our position would just leave. They might even end it for her and stop the pain. They might be right, but it doesn't feel right. I have to ask some more questions. What's your name? I shout to her. She says, Melissa. Melissa Dawn. I know a lot of Melissa's, but not this one. Casey's been living here, but he nods no, indicating he doesn't know who she is either. Where are you coming from, and where are you going? She's barely able to get it out through catching her breath, but she says she was sheltered in her home, and she tried to go up to the hospital, but saw it had gone south and just started walking to try and find anyone who could help her. She heard a vehicle this direction, and so she came this way. I guess she must have heard us. Normally, we would take her to the hospital, but that isn't an option right now. I don't want to let her in the ambulance. I don't even know what we would do. I speak quietly to Casey and Mark. Casey suggests that we could try and get her to a hospital in the next town over, if it isn't the same condition as this one. Mark suggests we give her an inhaler and some Tylenol and take off. Mark is one of the most compassionate people I've ever met, but he's being a realist now and he could be right. Mark and Casey, of course, both decide to leave it up to me. Against my survival instinct, I tell Casey to mask up, put some gloves on. He does it. I roll down the window a little and throw a mask out. I tell her to put it on and get in the back of the truck. She slowly puts the mask on and heads to the back. Mark is looking at me like I'm the dumbest person alive and I'm just hoping he isn't right. But Mark is right a lot. As she climbs in the back of the truck, I hear Casey tell her to lay down. Casey sets the back of the stretcher upright, and I tell him to strap her down tight and strap her hands down with soft restraints. I'm tempted to have him put her to sleep with some Ativan, but decide we might need that down the road. Casey straps her down, and she doesn't fight it. He puts some oxygen on her and takes her vitals. I look back at Casey, and he looks concerned. He pulls the cardiac monitor into view, and I can see why. Her blood pressure is about 100 over 60, her pulse is high, and even with the oxygen on, her SpO2 is only 86%. She's breathing short, fast breaths. Casey tells her to try and slow down her breathing. He sets up a nebulizer, puts some albuterol in, and puts the aerosol mask on her as he turns to me and tells me to go. This really puts a damper on our plan, which was to try to find more supplies in town, load up the other truck, and take off for the coast, back to Galveston, so we could see our families. But we have to do the right thing. That's all we know how to do. We decide to swing by the station and let Mark jump out and grab the other truck that we got the keys for. We swing by, this time, the coast is clear. Mark jumps out with the keys, starts it up, and pulls out behind me. 
We can always come back here if we need to and search the stores in the area or just search ones in the next town over. Hopefully, it's doing better than Gatesville was. The closest place to here is Fort Hood. Most of the military bases, especially the large ones surrounded by land, were converted into medical facilities or IQ zones. Fort Hood, being one of the largest military bases in Texas, was one of these. As we start driving, I fix the rearview mirror so that I can continue to look at the back of the truck. I don't even know why this ambulance has a rearview mirror. It can barely give visibility through the pass-through window and definitely is no help at all for seeing behind the truck. But I can see Casey's head to know if he's still there and doing okay. At this point, I'm not so worried about the condition of the patient as there has been no success in preserving those with these late signs and symptoms. My only hope is that we can make it to a hospital at Fort Hood and that she won't convert before we can make it there. It should only take us 37 minutes to get there, but Melissa was pushing the timeline further than anyone I had encountered with this virus. After the first 20 minutes, things are going okay. I can still hear the shallow breathing with the wheezing present, which means she's not gone yet. Usually, you would want your patient's breathing to get better and less noisy. With these patients, that only means the worst has happened. As long as I can hear that sound that brought fear to my heart, then I know that Casey is okay and we have time. I start to see the signs indicating we are getting close to Fort Hood. Only five miles to go, or five minutes Texas driving time, more like three minutes the way I'm driving. As the speed limit signs start to drop to 50 for nearing the Fort Hood entrance, that is when I hear exactly what I didn't want. I hear nothing. Nothing but the sound of the oxygen flowing. I hear Casey shuffle and see him in the mirror move towards the door to look out the window and see where we are. This isn't good. He yells, two minutes. That means I have two minutes before she turns. As I get to the entrance of Fort Hood, I know they haven't fared any better. The front entrance is abandoned and there's a crashed car from long before blocking the path to get in. I turn on the lights and sirens and Mark somehow figures out what I need. The truck he took has a huge replacement bumper and a big guard on it. He cuts in front of me and plows into the car blocking the entrance. We follow behind in the ambulance and I see in the mirror that Melissa has started to move again. Casey's yelling for me to pull over. I pull over and unlock the doors. Casey jumps out and I jump out too. Mark is running up at the same time. For a moment, Melissa is still strapped in. For some reason, the converted seemed to be incredibly strong. She's able to break free in no time. And then she's headed straight for us. This time, my compassion is gone. I see a stick, and I use it quickly in a way it was never intended. Melissa was no longer my patient, and never would be again. Okay, so, uh, this is the sixth chapter of EM Talks, The Converted. And uh, we have made it to Fort Hood. It's now Mark, Judd, and Casey. And uh, we've just uh, tried our best to do what EMS professionals are supposed to do and uh, just did not work out for us. So 
here we are in one of the largest military bases uh, in the world, and we are ready to do something else. We're ready to find a way to get to the coast. We're ready to keep on moving, but uh, we don't know what's in store for us. The next episode coming out, chapter seven, is going to be a, a totally different chapter than these other ones have been. It's going to be um, from the perspective of those at the Galveston base who are there and supposed to be being protected in order to um, maintain some kind of humanity. So they're not infected. They're the healthy. It's where uh, Casey, Judd, and Mark's families are. Um, so we're going to have an episode featuring those families, and they will tell us what is happening at the base. So we'll get a look inside of the Galveston safe zone. Um, keep tuning in and listening to The Converted.